short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. people I think is good people. They are they have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back to the Cold War Show. My name is Cameron Riley. And I am Ray Harris. And this is episode... Uh, fuckity do. Um, <laughs> 81. 81. <laughs> and we were just talking about the fact that we've done 80 episodes of the Cold War Show and we're still... In 1945. <laughs> That's quality. That's pure quality. <laughs> yeah. for, for those of you listening right now, just, just know that one day you'll be retired, sitting on your front porch or back porch smoking a cigar and listening to episode 2000. You'll be there with us, and, and we love you for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so... Um, in the last episode, Ray, we talked uh, all about the getting ready at the Trinity site for the first test mm-hmm. of the first atomic weapon uh, ever to be detonated by the human race in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Um, they weren't quite sure it was going to work. Uh, or if it did work, whether or not they would kill all life on Earth. Um, Uh, Groves, Leslie Groves, the general in charge of everything, had uh, placed a call to the New Mexico governor saying, listen, you you might need to declare martial law if shit goes horribly wrong. Horribly wrong with what? Can't tell you. Just uh, Really bad, though. Really bad. Yeah. Even if it goes horribly wrong and we need to declare martial law, you still, we still won't be able to tell you why we're doing (laughs) it. You'll have to make up something believable like a zombie outbreak or the (laughs) Jesus has come back or something like that. Um, and uh, the scientists were taking bets on whether or not the bomb would work, uh, and Enrico Fermi was willing to place a bet that the test would wipe out all life on Earth. That was uh, his take on it. Some scientists thought it would be a complete dud. Others thought it would be a huge success, and Fermi thought it would kill all life on Earth. Right. Now, and, uh, I just wanted and to... it was raining, sorry, go ahead. and I... I finished the last episode by saying at 4 a.m. Mm-hmm. on the morning of uh, the 15th of July, 1945, the rain stopped, So, which means that Leslie Grove didn't need to hang <laughs> the uh, meteorologist, Hubbard, the meteorologist. Uh, Hubbard who, who predicted that it would stop, <laughs> yes. And for those of you like me who are a little upset with Fermi's blase attitude don't don't think that he's too tough because we're going to find out later on this episode that he is in his own way shaken to the core with what they are trying to do and we'll get into that later but he is not as cool as he is as he is appearing to be so uh the guy in charge of arming the bomb kistiakovsky and his team armed the device shortly after 5 a.m and then went back to their positions at the control bunker. The The final job that they have to do is to switch on a string of lights on the ground that serves as an aiming point because uh, the Air Force wanted to know what the effect of the blast would be on a B-29, which was uh, 30,000 feet up and uh, a few miles away, where the actual plane would be when it released the bomb. Um, you know, that would, imagine being the yeah. pilot. Imagine being the pilots of that plane, that B twenty nine, B twenty nine, of course, named after Barry, <laughs> the Barry twenty nine. Uh, I hear that Barry was actually in that plane. Oh yeah, at the time. Yeah. That's a well known because he wanted to. 
He wanted to be there. Yeah. He wanted to be. He's he's always on the cutting edge, Barry. You, yeah. you gotta you gotta you gotta give him that for two thousand years. <laughs> He's been on the cutting edge of all of these developments. He's seen it all, yeah. Barry, well, thanks to the vampire blood exactly. that um, he has. Yeah. When you were talking earlier about the scientists only being like 5.6 miles away in the bunkers, you and I would have obviously been a lot further away. I think the scientists just wanted to be able to see it and say they were there. The same thing with Barry. It's just another story. He's going to be able to tell the great-grandkids or whoever around the fire at night. He's just a guy who's just got a lot of stories to tell, and they're all fascinating. Vampires, atomic bombs, what have you. Yeah, the scientists wanted to be close. Leslie Groves, on the other hand, not so much. Um, He said, look, you guys stay here. I think I'm making an executive decision that you guys here, in case anything goes horribly wrong. Someone's got to survive. I want to be able to. I want to be able to blame you guys <laughs> no. and you'll all be dead. So you stay here. I'm getting the fuck out of Dodge. No. But you, yeah. you stay here. <laughs> I'm going there. Uh, like Which was way, 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 way over there. Another five miles to the south is where Grove is going to go with Bush and Conant at the base camp. But I think, he, I think he probably spun it a lot better. Look, I better go further away in case something goes wrong and you all die. I'm going to give you a kick-ass eulogy and funeral. We're going to do the 21-gun salute. I will take care of everything. Have no fear. And so I think he probably spun it that way. Um, <clears throat> now, some of the scientists were at a party 20 miles away on Campania Hill. They weren't stupid. Uh, a party of onlookers. Right. Um, Teller said, we were told to lie down on the sand, turn our faces away from the blast and bury our heads in our arms. No one complied. (laughs) We were determined to look the beast in the eye. Oh, brave. Oh, God, that... Hold on. I've got... I've got... uh, I've got a clip from uh, Teller telling this story. Save the world, George. So I started to walk into the water. I won't lie to you, boys. I was terrified. I pressed on. And as I made my way past the breakers, a strange calm came over me. I I don't know if it was divine intervention or the kinship of all living things, but I tell you, Jerry, at that moment, I was a marine biologist. George, I've just been reading this thing in the paper. It's I know, I was just telling the story. Well, come on, George, finish the story. The sea was angry that day, my friends. Like an old man trying to send back soup in a deli. I got about 50 feet out, and suddenly, the great beast appeared before me. I tell you, he was 10 stories high if he was a foot. As if sensing my presence, he let out a great bellow. I said, easy, big fella. (laughs) And then, as I watched him struggling, I realized that something was obstructing its breathing. From where I was standing, I could see directly into the eye of the great fish. Well, whatever. (laughs) What did you do next? Then, (laughs) Whoops. Uh, (laughs) That's my favorite scene from all of Seinfeld. Oh, yeah. See, was angry that day, my friends. <laughs> we turned our faces away from the blast. We were determined. Uh, we, no one complied. We were determined to look the beast in the eye, said Teller. And then they all ended up blind and dead. But hey. <laughs> Blood coming out of their eyes. No, they, they did have, they did have uh, a backup plan. They all put suntan lotion on their faces. Ergo, <laughs> they were all going to be safe. And dark glasses uh, and heavy gloves. Mm -hmm. And they all came out looking like Donald Trump the next day. Uh, (laughs) White rings around their eyes and just uh, weird looking orangey tans all over the rest of their faces. Um, No, Teller said he himself wore a pair of dark glasses, heavy gloves, and pressed a welder's glass (laughs) to his face. Mm -hmm. That's going to work. 
All that was found afterwards was the, the welder's glass with his skin uh, <laughs> stuck to, to the yeah. inside of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. But, yeah, so so they've got everything into place. Uh, everybody's got into position. They do the countdown. And if you've seen the movie The Fat Man and the Little Boy, they do a really good job of building up the suspense. But at 5.30 a.m. on a Monday, July 16th in 1945, it is the moment of truth as the firing circuits are closed. Where are we going to be on the 16th of July this year, Ray? <sighs> not in Paris, not in Cor- is, is it going to be somewhere in Italy? I'm trying to remember the exact schedule. I'm uh, looking it up. Uh, we will be in Rome. Rome. On the 16th of July, we will be in Roma. Nice. Roma. Oh, man, are we going to have fun in Rome? And I feel I feel sad for the people that aren't coming with us. Yeah. Um, particularly the people who said they were going to come with us. Bastards. And uh, didn't. Out. Then yeah. pulled out. Pulled out faster than me when your wife walks into the room. Um <laughs> And that's fast, on the sixteenth. On the sixteenth of July, we are actually going to be doing a tour of the Vatican, and um, you we know we'll be taking out. we'll be we'll we'll have a betting pool running to see whether or not I get struck by lightning um, <laughs> during that trip, during that oh, uh, tour on that day. There's a thousand dollars easily made. That's my scientific test mm-hmm. to prove that God doesn't exist. I'm gonna right. before I walk into the Vatican, I'm gonna go fuck you, God. <laughs> Just try and strike me down, and if he doesn't, then I win the betting pool. Right. Basically, God doesn't exist. I've and you proved it, baby. Right. Hmm. Um, I wonder if I can get an interview with the Pope while I'm there. Okay. What, what if we'll do a sh- come on the show? What if he'll come on our Renaissance show? He's that kind of guy, Francis. I think he would. I, I. I've got a, a suspicion. He's a big fan of our Renaissance series. Francis, I know you, and I, 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 yeah. I'm sorry. I do know a way for you and I to meet him. Um, I can't mm-hmm. remember if it's every Tuesday or every Wednesday. I can't remember. But when Heather and I were married, we went to uh, Rome for a honeymoon. When you were married, you're not married we, to Heather anymore. <laughs> we, <laughs> at the time, I was currently married. No, uh, so Heather and I get married. We go to Rome and. They do a thing where they have a, I can't remember any of the proper terms, so I'm not even going to try to remember, but um, it's, it's this big, giant, massive auditorium or meeting place or whatever, and all the recently married couples get to set up front to the right, and if you're dressed in your appropriate wedding clothes, we weren't that day, you were allowed to go on stage with him and be blessed, but you and I could pose as a newly married gay couple from America and go up and we can kneel in front of him, and then you can quick ask him some questions or ask him, will he do the interview? I think that's a solid plan. I, I'm, I would like to point out to him that I was baptized as a Catholic and that I want him to re-baptize me. Maybe that would work. Um, I will eat the flesh and uh, drink the blood of right. the zombie lord. That's hot. Um, <laughs> if he will re-baptize me. <laughs> Anywho, I don't speak Italian anyway, so it wouldn't work. I don't think he's. I don't think he speaks much English, Francis. Spanish. Um, Meet in the middle. Speak Spanish. So, yeah, he's from. Where's he from? Like Venezuela, so something, Colombia, come somewhere Venezuela? in South America, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anywho, yeah. what the fuck? Sixteenth of July. Yes, at five thirty a.m. on a Monday. I don't know if you've ever had. You know, <laughs> tell me why I don't like Mondays. But uh, five thirty a.m. <laughs> 16th of July, the atomic age officially began. The firing circuit closed. 32 detonators fired around the outside of the mm. high explosive shell. The shockwave from that hit the tamper, which squeezed it mm. and liquefied it. The plutonium sphere inside the tamper shrank to the size of an eyeball. Oh. And in the center of the plutonium sphere, pl- polonium alpha particles kicked neutrons out of the beryllium. They don't know how many. Might have been one, might have been two, might have been as, might have been as many as nine. Mm-hmm. But that was enough to start a chain reaction ah. in the plutonium. Now, the, this chain reaction went through 80 generations 
in millionths of a second. God. Generated millions of degrees of heat and millions of pounds of pressure. X-rays were generated as a result of this, which superheated the air, which generated another shockwave. The explosion vaporised the steel tower and turned the asphalt around the base of the tower into green sand, which is actually called Trinitarium. Hmm. It's It's a mineral that you can buy... Online, um, and we have we have a listener. I can't remember who, but one of our listeners lives in Alamogordo. Oh wow! And uh, sent sent us a message, an email, or something recently. And I said, "Dude, get me some Trinitarium." And he said, "I've never heard of it before." <laughs> Not Trinitarian, right? Which no. is uh, somebody who believes in the Holy Trinity, the Renaissance Trinit- right. Trinitarium. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I think it's called. I'm just looking it up now because. Uh, oh, sorry, it's not called that at all. Fuck me. It's called Trinitite. Ah. Okay. Okay. Trinitite. According to the uh, Wikipedia's, uh, Trinitite, also known as Atomsite or Alamogordo glass, is the glassy residue left on the desert floor after the plutonium-based Trinity nuclear bomb test on July 16, 1945, near Alamogordo, New Mexico. Glass is primarily composed of arcosic sand composed of quartz grains and feldspar that was melted by the atomic blast. It is usually a light green and little known fact, uh, if Superman gets too close to it, mm-hmm. uh, he, he loses his powers. Yeah, that's science. Um, I, when I tried to get some Trinity, I found out Batman had secretly uh, <laughs> bought, it all up. Bought, bought it all up. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, to make spears out of to stab Superman in the fucking heart but should he ever go rogue. You've got to have a backup plan, and, and Batman, it's all about backup plans. And, and like you were mm. saying earlier, some of those we're watching suffered from temporary blindness, even though they were using smoked glasses. But again, I really can't imagine that would help. Um, seconds later, a, wee, a wave of searing heat across the desert knocked some people to the ground. And this is the part that shocked me the most. Out of all the stats we're going to go over, a steel container that weighed more than 200 tons, which was a half a mile away from ground zero, was knocked over. And like you were saying, that the millions of degrees of heat. I mean, this is just. I think. I think they were all taken back by witnessing this and the actual results of it. Once they get them, once they figure them out later. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know that uh, you should be surprised by that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the 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 heat generated from the Trinity explosion was insane. Yeah, like we're we're talking about. Uh, it ended up being the equivalent of eighteen point six kilotons of power, um, which is uh, insane. It's an insane amount of uh, heat generated. I th- I'm pretty. I looked up. I looked this up recently. I, we might have talked about it on the show. I can't remember, but. I was having this conversation with Taylor, one of my boys, and ex- I was explaining a couple of months ago that nuclear weapons produce more heat than the sun. Damn. Yeah. Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, and I'm, somebody's probably going to send me an email and tell me that I'm wrong, but I don't think I'm wrong. No, I think I'm I right. Think I remember right. looking it up. Generates more heat than the sun. The core of the sun uh, reaches 15 million degrees Celsius. Here's an eyewitness account, Ray, Mm -hmm. that I tracked down. I watched a video by this guy, but here's his written account. Victor Weisskopf Mm. was an Austrian-born theoretical physicist who was at the Trinity test. He, He was one of the giants of 20th century Physics. Most people don't know his name. He died in 2002, age 93. Wow. Mm. 
And there's a great interview on YouTube with him in 1988. I think I posted on Facebook a month or so ago. But, uh, yeah, really interesting to hear him talk about physics and, and, and Trinity and all that kind of stuff. But um, afterwards, he was asked to submit a first-hand account um, to the government. This is what he wrote. You have asked me to submit to you an eyewitness account of the explosion. I was located at base camp and watched the phenomenon from a little ridge about 100 yards east of the water tower. Groups of observers had arranged small wooden sticks at a distance of 10 yards from our observation place in order to estimate the size of the explosion. They were arranged so that their distance corresponded to 1,000 feet at zero point. I looked at the explosion through the dark glass, but I have provided for an indirect view of the landscape in order to see the deflected light. When the explosion went off, I was first dazzled by this indirect light, which was much stronger than I anticipated, and I was not able to concentrate upon the view through the dark glass and missed, therefore, the first stages of the explosion. When I was able to look through the dark glass, I saw flames and smoke of an estimated diameter of 1,000 yards, which was slowly decreasing in brightness, seemingly due to more smoke development. At the same time, it rose slightly above the surface. After about three seconds, its intensity was so low I could remove the dark glass and look at it directly. Then I saw a reddish glowing smoke ball rising with a thick stem of dark brown colour. Oh, my penis, when I pull it out your ass, it is a thick stem of no. dark brown colour, but that's a different story. This smoke ball was surrounded <laughs> by a blue glow. Everything turns you on. I just noticed that. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, that's true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> much to the chagrin of Chrissy. Um, this smoke ball... <laughs> This smoke ball was surrounded by a blue glow, which clearly indicated a strong radioactivity and was certainly due to the gamma rays emitted by the cloud into the surrounding air. At the moment, the cloud had about 1,000 billions of curies of radioactivity whose radiation must have produced the blue glow. The first two or three seconds, I felt very strongly the heat radiation all over the exposed parts of my body. The part of my retina which was exposed to the indirect light from the surrounding mountains was completely blinded, and I could feel traces of the after image 30 minutes after the shock. Wow. Yeah. The reddish cloud darkened after about 10 or 20 seconds and rose rather rapidly, leaving behind a thick stem of dark brown smoke. After this, I remember having seen a white hemisphere rising above the clouds in continuation of the breakthrough of the explosion cloud through the ordinary cloud level. The path of the shock wave through the clouds was plainly visible as an expanding circle over the sky where it was covered by clouds. After about 45 seconds, the sound wave arrived and it struck me as being much weaker than anticipated. Victor Weisskopf. Yeah. Um, now, in this interview I watched with him from 1988, he said something that I agree with. He said, a sunset is made ever more beautiful if you understand something about the science that causes it. Mm -hmm. Science doesn't deprive us of beauty, it enhances it. Right. You know, I often talk to people, I think you and I talked about this on the on the Three Illusions show, but I will often just sit and look around me at even in my office at the walls and the pictures or if I'm outside at the trees and, and people and objects and just ponder on the fact that everything that I'm seeing these these are is made by atoms that were forged in the core of a collapsing sun yeah. billions of years ago in a distant part of the universe and Probably, you know, over the last 10 billion years, they were parts of a number of different suns. They probably were forged in the explosion of one sun, then ended up as another sun. And when that exploded, they got kicked out to another sun. They finally ended up 
is the detritus from our sun being created, which became the rest of the, the solar system, became this planet over the five billion years of this planet's history. Those atoms that I'm looking at have been part of an innumerable number of animals, humans, dinosaurs, inanimate objects, rocks, dirt, dust, water, whatever, um, and are now the atoms in my children or my wife or, or a tree or the chair that I'm sitting on. Yeah. And then I further reflect upon the fact that I'm not actually seeing those atoms. A photon emitted from the sun uh, eight minutes ago, uh, uh, eight minutes or eight yeah. seconds, eight minutes. Eight minutes. I, I always get that wrong. So it's eight seconds or eight, eight minutes. It takes eight minutes, right? Yeah. Emitted from the sun. Uh, is, is entered our atmosphere, bounced off of the nuclear core of the atoms, mm-hmm. then comes and enters my eye, hits the retina. The retina records it as an electrical signal, sends an electrical signal up the optic nerve into my brain. My brain converts that electrical signal into an image and says, oh, what you're seeing is uh, the colour green on a leaf of a tree. Right. And my brain recomposites millions and millions and millions of these bits of information and then fills in the gaps that it can't see. It says, well, that's, you know, if you're seeing, uh, you know, uh, half a leaf, there's probably a full leaf, so I'll just show you the full leaf. Is right. that okay? Okay. It paints Good. it in for you. Yeah, uh, yeah paints it in. That is what's going on when I sit there and I look at my wife and my family and my trees, and it boggles my mind. I'm like, holy fucking shit, that's amazing. I can't believe I even know any of that, let alone <laughs> that that's, that's what's happening, right? Puts things in um, perspective, yeah. Like that, that fills me with awe and wonderment every time I think about it. So mm-hmm. thank you, science. Yeah. Don't need God. We have science. We have Enrico Fermi. Um, so yes, the steel container was knocked over that weighed more than 200 tons. The orange and yellow fireball stretched up and spread. Uh, and then a second column rose up, flattened into a mushroom shape that Weisskopf, uh, described in that firsthand account, of course, giving, giving the atomic age, the mushroom cloud visual image Mm. that became the symbol for the power and destruction of nuclear weapons. And then Oppenheimer uttered his famous quote, which I will play for you. We knew the world would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. Whoa. Yeah. That's a video. That's a video I'll put in the show notes um, of um, Oppenheimer, obviously, some years later. Um, You can just kind of see the uh, trauma Mm -hmm. in his eyes. (laughs) Like uh, the realization. Uh, Just, I mean, I think it weighed very heavily. On him. Well, I watched that, and the very first impression I got was picture this brilliant scientist who's done a whole bunch of things. He's he's amazing. He's got he's got these uh, theories in his head that most of us would never understand. He works with the government. He works with all these other guys for years and years, and they come over numerous obstacles. They finally get it done, and the second they hit the ignition button or whatever, and it works. The sheer joy. And relief that must have flooded through him, and then almost a nanosecond later, 
the realization of what he's done. And that was what I saw in his face during that interview, because I watched that on YouTube as well. It's like these two things of pride, accomplishment, amazement, amazement, and then this just overwhelmed feeling just seemed to compete on his face as he's giving that interview. And if you've never gone and looked at the video and the photographs from Trinity, you should do that. Again, yeah. I'll put some links to them in our show notes. Um, it's uh, really quite a profound and, and amazing thing to uh, look at and, and contemplate. Not only that human scientists were able to delve into the the fabric of nature enough and understand it to create basically you know a, a nuclear explosion similar to what's happening inside of the sun um but although they're doing fission not fusion but uh, yeah, sun is fusion right so fission blowing it apart okay f forget that so not what happens in the side of the sun but something similar right. but opposite but um you know what what's what what's come out of it and the 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 ability to wipe out all human life if not a lot of other forms of life on this planet as a result it's 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 quite it's quite uh yeah disturbing and profound yeah on all sorts of levels wasn't it only like 2,000 years ago the Greeks thought that everything was made up of a, a couple basic things, earth, water, fire, something, and they'd go from that to what these guys were able to do is truly astounding. Oppenheimer later said that uh, the experience of Trinity also made him think of the legend of Prometheus, who was punished by Zeus for giving fire to the human race. And he also thought about Alfred Nobel, who apparently hoped that his discovery of dynamite would end wars. Mm. Did you know that the guy who created the Nobel Prize invented dynamite? I knew that, but I didn't know that he thought that somehow this amazing thing would end future wars. Um, but I did know that he, uh, yeah, for, for PR and for other reasons, he comes up with the Nobel Peace Prize. But yeah, he made a shit ton of money from the dynamite um, discovery or the invention. Yeah, he also invented gelignite and ballastite, mm. which is uh, a predecessor to predecessor to cordite. Um, he also owned Bofors, a company that manufactured cannons. Mm -hmm. And um, what happened was there was a, a premature obit for him <laughs> in a newspaper. Which apparently there was, they thought he was dead and he wasn't, and they published his obituary and they condemned him for profiting from arms sales, being a war profiteer. Oh shit! Um, so Awkward. he he bequeathed his entire fortune to set up the Nobel Peace Prize. Mm -hmm. Well, the Nobel, all the Nobel prizes, not just the Peace Prize, all the Nobel prizes. Um, and he did it without telling his family. Oh. So uh, <laughs> he died and they're like, right, Vacation thank God, Dad's, Daddy, rich daddy's dead. I'm going to uh, buy Hawaii. Yeah let's, yeah, let's get ready. And found out that, uh, yeah, oh. all the money was gone. Cut no. At base camp, um, 10 miles away <laughs> from the explosion, just to be safe, Bush, Conant and Groves, Shook hands. Hubbard was also there. Right. He heard Groves say, my faith in the human mind has been somewhat re somewhat restored. <laughs> what does it take to impress this guy? <laughs> A successful explosion, apparently. Somewhat. Um, yeah. Bainbridge apparently said to Oppenheimer straight after the test, now we are all sons of bitches. Damn. What, what do you think he meant by that, that they had come up with this, like you said a second ago, this ability to destroy life on the planet, or was, was it something more specific? Hmm. Well, no, I think it was that. I think okay. now we, we've created the ultimate weapon which uh, could have devastating consequences. Yeah. He later wrote, My personal nightmare was knowing that if the bomb didn't go off or hang-fired... 
I, as head of the test, would have to go to the tower first and seek to find out what had gone wrong. Fuck you, I quit. <laughs> I'm out of here. Now, the uh, the betting pool that they had going to see how much power it would give off was won by Isidore Rabi of MIT. Yeah. Uh, he had put his money on 18 kilotons. Woo-woo! And he swept the pot, broke out a bottle of whiskey that he had been saving for the occasion because he was pretty damn sure he was right, man. He yeah. was like, hey. Nailed it. You know, I'm yeah, I'm pretty good at the horses. <laughs> Uh, play a lot of poker. I'm pretty good at this kind of thing. Passed it around. Yeah. Everyone had a swig. Yeah. I, but. I, yeah. I just want to mention before we go on, getting back to Fermi for a second. So we haven't really covered this because there's no reason this is not part of the story. But he was a, a particular kind of person who did not like to be driven around. He hated it. He always wanted to drive whenever he, when he was in a car. He used to drive him crazy. Um, for anybody to drive him around. He, he hated it with a passion, and he insisted on driving. Later on, he's going to write his wife saying that after the test, he could not drive back to their camp because he did not trust himself. He was so overwhelmed and shaken by the experience of the of the detonation that he did not trust himself to be able to concentrate to, to keep the car on the road. So he might have been playing a cool earlier, messing with Groves, but he, just like everyone else, was overwhelmed by what they had achieved. Yeah, I think lots of the scientists involved in the Manhattan Project um, were haunted by what they'd done for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll probably talk about some of those as we, we go along in the series. Um, but for the moment, the success of the Trinity test meant that the plutonium bomb could also be readied for use against Japan. Mm. Oppenheimer and Groves wrote a report for Stimson, the Secretary of State, who was in Potsdam Secretary of War. with Truman. Fuck, Secretary. Who was Secretary of State? Burns. Already? No, that came later. You sure? Because he goes to um, Potsdam with Truman. Maybe I'm wrong. But I think Stimson was always Secretary of War. Mm, yeah, you're right. Secretary of... No, yes. He was Secretary of War, then Secretary of State under Hoover, then Secretary mm. of War. Yeah. Okay. No big deal. So, uh, oh, well, Burns. When was Burns... Was it James F. Because he thought Burns. he was going to be, yeah, sorry. I remember on the previous show we were talking about, he thought he was going to be picked mm-hmm. as the vice president. So he's got a bit of an mm-hmm. attitude, and he was the most experienced. He he um, had held a lot of different positions. So so Truman's going to use him. July 3rd, mm. you're right. Okay. So a week week and a half before the test, he was made Secretary of State. Good call. Sure. Who was the, sec- who was the Secretary of State before him? Uh, Hall. He, Hull. He's a he. He was sick. He was old and uh, sick, but I can't. Remember. I think it was cancer, but I can't remember what. Mm, no, big steady. Statinius. It was, yeah. Oh, steady. Steady uh, was the guy before him. Okay. Big steady from Virginia. Then I think yeah. I homeboy. Think Hull was yeah, homeboy. Previous yeah. Hull was before yeah. yeah. Hull was before steady. There we go. Um, Hull. Hull. Resign on uh, November 30, 1944. He was sick, as you said. Um, yeah. Stimson, Hull, Steady, and then Burns. Anywho, uh, so they wrote a letter to Steady saying uh, it had gone well. And we've already talked about what happened then. He told Truman, Truman told Churchill, and then they kind of hinted to uh, Stalin. Didn't Churchill a week later? Right. Didn't Churchill get um, very, even say, sexually excited about the idea of dropping a whole bunch of bombs all over Russia? I'm just trying to remember yeah. the details. Yeah, his his little boy grew <laughs> by an inch when he found out about oh, it. I've, fat man's little boy <laughs> grew grew an inch. <laughs> oh, I, I just want to mention this one thing. So after the test. At 1,520 yards, or nine-tenths of a mile, almost a mile, the exposed surface, because of the bomb, heated up almost instantly to 750 degrees Fahrenheit. So again, just 
for what's coming, it's just just this flash of intense heat. That's uh, it's it's just it's it's just mind-boggling what this thing's capable of, and it's going to be used against humans. But that's for later. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the um, American Army uh, had prepared press releases in the event that everyone died. Mm-hmm. Uh, in case Fermi was right, and end of life as we know <laughs> it happened, they had a press release ready for that. Right. Um, but they also had press releases to try if it was successful, and these are what get released. Um, they don't say an atom bomb went off. No. They say an ammunition an ammunition magazine accidentally exploded. Right on the Alamogordo Air Base. I've got a. I went to newspapers dot com and clipped a couple of these. Nice. Um, Alamogordo base explosive blast jolts wide area. Windows at Gallup, 235 miles away, rattle, no loss of lives. Following a blast felt over hundreds of miles Monday morning, explosion of a considerable amount of high explosive and pyrotechnics in a remote area of the Alamogordo Air Base Reservation was reported by Colonel William O. Erickson, Commandant. 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 Do you call him Commandant? You have Com- commandants in the Commandant. American Army? I, mean, I don't like think a, anymore. Says, I think I don't know. Like a, he was a Nazi yeah, who happened to be jer- at the Com- Alamogoro <laughs> Air Base. No. Um, um, although the blast rattled windows 235 miles away at Gallup in northwestern New Mexico, Colonel Erickson said there was no loss of life or injury to anyone. I guess technically saying high explosive, they're not lying. <laughs> there, there was high explosive. Yeah, yeah. Another one, uh, no one injured an ammunition blast. An ammunition magazine on the Alamogordo Air Base Reservation exploded with such force it was seen for 100 miles and heard as far away as eastern Arizona. Oh, my God. Colonel William O. Erickson, commanding officer, said the magazine was remotely located and that no one was killed or injured by the blast. He added that weather conditions affecting the content of gas shells exploded by the blast may make it desirable for the army to evacuate temporarily a few civilians from their homes. A few. So this, in this one, they're straight out lying <laughs> to the American people. It wasn't an ammunition magazine that exploded and the evacuation won't have anything to do with weather conditions affecting the content of gas shells. Um, yeah. Nuclear radiation just wasn't <laughs> just, sexy. No. Or a little not too that, sexy. Not that anyone in 1940... Well, no one in 1945 knew what they nuclear were, radiation was yeah, anyway. It's bad. You could have told Americans in 1945 that... You know, their Cheerios had nuclear radiation in it and they would have eaten it thinking it was uh, going to yeah. make stronger bones. No one no one knew. Turn me into Captain America. Oh, speaking of which, I went to see the Avengers Infinity War film with uh, Taylor the other night. So did I. What did you think? You went with Taylor? I didn't see you there. Did you go on it? I was behind. I was behind. Um, I mean, it was a lot of cool individual scenes, but... I don't know. I I purposefully stayed away from all the uh, commercials and stuff like that. I wanted to be shocked. I, I just remember going, okay, yeah, all right, okay. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I avoided all the spoilers and everything. Yeah. I went and I went, eh, I don't, I don't give a shit. Like, they could have all fucking died. I don't care. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I did, you know, and I'll tell you what, this is one thing, and I'm, I'm glad you saw it. We should talk about this. Um, and this is actually a good show to do it. Uh, the, the, and a spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen a movie and doesn't want to get spoiled, like just fast forward a couple of minutes, but the depiction of Thanos, which I thought was actually kind of cool. Yeah. Although I didn't really understand his, I didn't understand his motivation very much. Uh, so the people on his planet, you know, died because they overpopulated the planet. So he needs to go and kill half the people in the universe. Like fucking what? But his whole depiction of, of, um, consequentialism, mm-hmm. uh, listen, it's a terrible thing, but somebody has to do it and I'm the guy who's going to do it and uh, you'll thank me later. Reminded me of Stalin, particularly because we were supposed to be doing a show about Stalin Day with this guy that left us a negative review on iTunes and then he didn't show up. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, it kind of rem- Thanos reminded me of Stalin a lot in in the film. Did you did you get a Stalin vibe out of him? I, I got the sense that look, what I'm going to do is going to be 
best for everybody. Um, it's and and to be impartial, I don't decide who lives or dies. I'm just going to set this thing in motion. Uh, but I, I did get the sense of someone who was completely removed. And you would have to be to make a decision like this. I did get the sense of someone who was completely removed, doing it for the better good, and but in the end, did expect to be appreciated for what he did. Hmm. Yeah. But yeah, as a movie, I, I mean, a lot of action, and, and obviously, and and it was entertaining enough. Like I wasn't yeah. bored. No, it kept moving. But I also wasn't. I wasn't moved though at the right. end of it. I mean, no. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't give a shit. And of course, you know, I know that they're all going to come back to life in the next yeah. movie or the one after that. So it's like, yeah, it's not really, yeah. you know, it's not really, not really getting me by the short and curlies. Right. Yeah. All right. Back to, you can, you can take your fingers out your ears now. Spoiler of words. Wherever Meanwhile, they are. Yeah. While all this was going on. It was clear to the Japanese, even before all of this happened, that the war was lost. Yeah. Um, in, in an attempt to uh, achieve some sort of a surrender with, with honour, yeah. Emperor Hirohito had instructed his ministers to open negotiations with the Russians. So on June 30... Mm-hmm. Sorry, you want to interrupt? No, no, please go ahead. On June 30, two weeks and a bit before the Trinity test, um, Tojo told Naotaki Sato, Japan's ambassador in Moscow. Mm-hmm. Tojo, for people who don't remember, is the, the foreign minister of Japan. Told Naotaki Sato, who's their ambassador in Moscow, to try and establish firm and lasting relationships of friendship Mm. with Russia. And he was told to discuss the status of Manchuria and any matter the Russians would like to bring up. Wow. Now, apparently all of this is code for, you know, just see if they want us to surrender. Uh, We know that the Russians have an alliance with the Americans and the British. So uh, if they want us to surrender, that's fine. We're open to discussing it. Now, now I just want... The Soviet... I'm, yeah. Yes. So I'm sorry, Cam. No, you go ahead. I apologize. No, that's all right. Kick in. I just wanted to give that some context. So we can sit here and say uh, surrender with honor, that kind of stuff, but it really was a different world back then. These people did uh, live in a different world and they thought a different way that this was important to them. It was more important than life. And the reason that this is a big deal is because Russia and Japan hated each other. The Japanese hated the Russians, even before the 1904-1905 Russo-Japanese War, where the Japanese were able to humiliate Russia, destroy two naval forces, even before then. I mean, there's a lot of hatred and mistrust for decades going back. And so for for the Japanese to contact that excuse me, for the Japanese to contact them to try to get a dialogue going, even if it's backdoor, even if it's passive-aggressive, that is a huge step for the Japanese. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm simply, I just wanted to give it context because it is a big step forward for them to be able to contact Moscow and to get this going. They had to, they had to swallow a lot of pride just to do this. And that shouldn't be overlooked. Mm. Mm. I've actually got a clip of uh, that. Of course you do. Night of the fight, you may feel a slight sting. That's pride fucking with you. Fuck pride. Pride only hurts. It never helps. So that's what uh, mm-hmm. Stalin was saying to uh, Molotov. Ended up saying to the Japanese at the time. <laughs> now, <laughs> the one and, and the guy that we were supposed to have on tonight. I don't know if he would like this either. But um, so Tokyo and Moscow are talking to each other, and of course the United States intercepts these messages. We were very bad at it at first, but by the time 1945 comes around, we've got the Japanese codes locked down pretty well. And so we know it's going on. And the Japanese are like, look, 
we're just looking for something. And of course, they're saying this passively. We're looking for something other than unconditional surrender because we have our emperor. The United States isn't saying anything about the emperor. This is unacceptable. And the United States is reading all of these letters. But again, as far as we can tell, Stalin is honorable and he does not break the pact. He does not uh, go further than what he probably should have. But again, the Americans probably weren't thinking in terms like that. They probably just the fact that Tokyo and Moscow were talking is probably making Truman even more suspicious of Stalin at this point. That's an interesting, um, interesting conclusion to come to. I'd never thought about that, I mean, the Japanese are trying to surrender via the Russians, who they still have um, uh, a pact with. Right, right. Neutrality pact, Um, which so that makes sense. But anyway, the Russians were delaying the conversations. Molotov wouldn't talk to the Japanese uh, for... Like a week and a half, he kept pushing it off. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until July 11th that Molotov finally met with Sato. And my reading of that is the Russians didn't really want Japan to surrender. The Russians wanted to get in there yeah. and uh, take all of their shit back. They wanted payback for the war of 1904, 1905. Um, so that wasn't in their interest to have have a surrender before they could get in and take some of their shit. Right. Um, but the other part of that is Stalin knows the United States is reading these intercepts. So not only does he not want to go through with it, but he doesn't even want to appear to be talking to these people. But you're right. you got the Russo-Japanese War. you got the Battle of Nobahan in 1939. J- Japan has embarrassed Russia. It is now Russia's time. It's Russia's turn. Japan's... Um, Japan is low. It is time for Stalin to make up for all of the humiliation, all of the stuff the Tsars had suffered under Japanese power. He is going to get back his. It is time for Russia to strike back. Um, So Sato finally meets with Molotov on July 11. Nothing comes of it. Um, And then the next day, July 12, four days before the Trinity test, Tojo... um, sends another telegram to Sato, um, and this is what it read. It said he should tell the Soviets that His Majesty the Emperor, mindful of the fact that the present war daily brings greater evil and sacrifice upon the peoples of all belligerent powers, desires from his heart that it may be quickly terminated. But so long as England and the United States insist upon unconditional surrender, The Japanese Empire has no alternative but to fight on with all its strength for the honour and existence of the motherland. Now, Hirohito also thought about sending Prince Konoe uh, as a special envoy, but he wouldn't be able to get to Moscow before Stalin left for the Potsdam Conference. Um, Sato apparently wrote back to Tojo saying that in reality, unconditional surrender or terms closely equivalent thereto was all that Japan could expect to get out of the Allies at this stage. Yeah. Now, I I know time's coming up soon, and I'm not sure where you want to stop, but I I did want to drill down into this for a second. So the Japanese, because we all know that the emperor is not directly in charge. He doesn't run the government. He's, he's, he's supposed to reign and not rule. But the point is, the, the, Japan is being bombed. Tens of thousands of people are being killed every day. They've already, the, the island is surrounded. It can't get much worse for these people, except for it can go on being bad. But they're still to the point where we, I guess they're saying we would rather die than give up unconditional re- surrender. Because when the entire war starts, when, um, uh, Hideki Tojo becomes prime minister in uh, 1941. He pretty much made up his mind to go to war because he would rather go to war than give up chi- what they had in China, give up Manchukuo, and give up Korea. So he's saying, if we ke- if we mess with the Americans, there's a 99% chance we're going to lose, but that 1% chance is worth taking. And to me, that same mentality is still here today. As bad as things are, we have to be able to surrender under a certain under a certain in a certain way under a certain guise and i guess just the americans could not 
truly appreciate that, that they would rather die than resist and have, and have them, them be defeated in a certain way. I just don't think the well, Americans think a lot were of Americans, that. No, yeah. I think a lot of Americans were. And we'll get into this um, mm-hmm. over the course of the, the next dozen episodes or so where we, we drill down into the decision that the Americans made to bomb Japan. Right. Um, and we'll, we'll drill down into all of the facts around the surrender uh, demands that Americans made. A lot of American military and political leaders well understood that unconditional surrender, primarily because of the the fate of the emperor. As mm-hmm. we've talked about on the show before, the Japanese thought the emperor was divine. He, he was Jesus on earth. Right. And, and they, they couldn't surrender without clarification of what his status was going to be after the surrender. Plenty of American political and military leaders well understood that um, at this juncture. I think that's, as we're going to find out as we do a couple more episodes, to me, that is the crux of the issue. Like you said, the, the, the Americans who were in charge knew that was the one big hang-up, and yet they didn't do anything about it. And that's where it all yeah. comes down to for the Japanese. Yeah. Um, so Sato, again, writing back to Tojo on, um, I don't know what this is, July... 14, something like that, um, says that uh, the Molotov wanted specific proposals. Um, Sato suggested that Tojo's messages were not clear about the views of the government and the military with regard to the termination of the war. Uh, and, you know, was sort of pushing back, and I guess this is Molotov pushing back, is this attempted surrender coming from the military, coming from the government, only Ah. coming from the emperor. Tojo obviously represents the government. He's the foreign minister. But Molotov was was asking the question at this point. Um, It wasn't until July 17, day after Trinity, Tojo responded, although the directing powers and the government as well are convinced that our war strength still can deliver considerable blows to the enemy, we are unable to feel absolutely secure peace of mind. Please bear particularly in mind, however, that we are not seeking the Russians' mediation for anything like an unconditional surrender. And Sato replied back, it goes without saying that in my earlier message calling for unconditional surrender or closely equivalent terms, I made an exception of the question of preserving the imperial family. A few days later, on July 21, Tojo replied, this time speaking in the name of the cabinet, with regard to unconditional surrender, we are unable to consent to it under any circumstances whatever. It is in order to avoid such a state of affairs that we are seeking a peace through the good offices of Russia. It would be disadvantageous and impossible from the standpoint of foreign and domestic considerations to make an immediate declaration of specific terms. So it's very clear that on July 21st, speaking in the name of the government, Tojo was saying we are seeking a peace. Mm Mm-hmm. But couldn't be unconditional. Um, they couldn't make an immediate statement on what the specific terms would be, but they were opening the channels for peace negotiations officially and uh, deliberately on behalf of the government of Japan. And, and here's the other part of that. Because this is such in a state of flux, as the Indianapolis, the USS Indianapolis is sailing to deliver um, the bomb. The Japanese plan at this point is, look, we know we've lost the war, but for right now, if we can just keep on inflicting damage and death to the Americans and to the British to so, on such a scale that that will force them to the negotiating table. So the Japanese know they're losing, but because they can't get a clear signal from the Americans about the status of the emperor, their best bet is to try and draw so much blood than to force the Americans to the table to come up with some something other than unconditional surrender. Exactly. 
And as you said, the Americans were listening to all of this. They had decrypted the Japanese codes. Um, the, the, the code the Japanese Foreign Office was using this time was known as the Purple Code for high-level diplomatic correspondence. Um, and it was being uh, uh, coded by something called the 97 Shiki Injiki Type B Cipher Machine. I'll take your word for it. Um, coincidentally, that was the name of Dick Tickling's um, third uh, <laughs> porn film. What are the odds? The 97, the 97 Shiki and Jiki. Um, and it flopped. And that, that was when I had to retire. The uh, movie from my or porn the career. Just... Oh, oh, right, right, right. Um, so uh, because the Americans were, were, were reading these, uh, it turns out that the Americans were getting the messages almost as quickly as, uh, Sato, mm-hmm. the ambassador was yeah, we're getting good uh, at in Moscow. Um, so they knew in real time that this was going on, but chose to ignore it. The Russians also chose to ignore it. Um, as I said before, you know, they'd been, um, the Russians had been soundly defeated by Japan, both in the Russo-Japanese War, where they sunk two Russian fleets and put an end to the Russian expansion in the east. And by the way, that wasn't a Soviet thing. That was during the Tsars, mm-hmm. right, 1904, right. 1905. Uh, then Battle of Han that you mentioned in the summer of 39 when um, Japan tried to invade Siberia Mongolia. just three weeks before Hitler's uh, invasion of Poland. Yeah. Um, so Stalin's doesn't really want uh, uh, to negotiate, help negotiate a peace here either. He he wants to get him some shit. He right. wants to uh, uh, get get some territorial gains. And and, and just so and, yeah, I'm sorry. I just want to throw I was just in, and, wrap and it up. You want to say something? just real quick? And you're you're absolutely right. Stalin wanted to get Manchuria. He wanted to get some the uh, the northern half of the, of the islands. That I can't remember the name of them right now. Kurile Islands. But the point is, this is how the game is played. There's always going to be a future war. There's always going to be conflict, and there's always going to be an opportunity for revenge. And this is Russia's time to get it back. And this is just the way the game is played. There's no judgments here. This is just the way it was. Memory. So no, so no nasty emails. Like this is just the, my mind. Sorry, what? No, just, just no. Na- we don't need any nasty emails. This is just the way it was, and and we'll get into all it later. Um, but that's for later. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh. Let me read a review before we go. This is from uh, the nice. United States, Mystic Mystic Jabroni. Uh, <laughs> funny and informative. Honestly, I would have paid for the subscription if the podcast was nothing but Cameron's impressions of Churchill. <laughs> I was too. laughing while listening at my desk the other day, and it was interesting to see my co-worker's face when I told her I was laughing at a Cold War podcast. <laughs> Keep up the good work. Um, now, let me read this negative review, uh, because yes. we're trying to get this guy on the show. So, And also from the United States, Hugh Mellor, his, his, his review is disgraceful, is the title of it. These guys apologize for Stalin. Do I need to say anything more? Listen to episode three and you will see what I'm talking about. They justify Stalin's murder of millions of through starvation because it eventually helped the Allies in World War II. Cam is clearly an Aussie socialist and Ray is his tag-along yes-man. I liked Ray prior to this, but you can tell he is like a freshman in high school sucking up to an older classman in hopes he will befriend him. These guys are hacks and frauds. You can tell they have no clue what's really going on in the world. There's no chance they ever actually were successful at a real job. I highly advise skipping this. Um, So... Hugh uh, sent me an email, uh, several emails, yeah. actually. Um, and, not, and they were just as bad, yeah. Just ranting. And I said, you want to come on the show? And he said, yes. And I rubbed my hands with glee. Uh, 
Um, he was supposed to turn up this morning, sent me a lame email at the last minute saying he couldn't make it. Um, but we are going to try and reschedule it and get him on. So that should be fun. Uh, keep an eye out for that in the coming weeks with a bit yeah. of luck. If he doesn't puss out, we will get Hugh Mellor, H-U-G-H-M-E-L-L-O-R, if you want to look him up on Facebook. Um, we will get him on and he can tell us how wrong we His version are. of history. Exactly, exactly. His version of of Stalin's motivation should be fascinating. His version um, of our interpretation of Stalin's motivation. Yeah. All right. Well, that's the show for this week. Uh, we'll be back next time, either with Hugh or something else. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Descended across the continent. Of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.